This episode brought to you by Appeal, helping you to enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com, A-P-E-E-L.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday. And, you know, most of the time we're pretty close to noon these days. And, you know, sometimes we go over. Nastasia might bump off if we go over because she hates it. She'll give you the book of goodbye. Speaking of which, we have uh, from her undisclosed location uh, somewhere in Southern California, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have uh, John... Uh, is back in his customer service hidey hole in the uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan. How you doing, John? Yeah. We have Matt in his Rhode Island booth. We're doing the COVID. We're all over the map. How you doing? Mm-hmm. Checking yeah. off an extra state for you. Yeah. Yeah. Rhode Island or Providence Plantation. And here, we don't know what state, but we have special guest, Melissa Weller here today, talking about her new book, A Good Bake, The Art and Science of Making Perfect Pastries, Cakes, Cookies, pies and breads at home. Welcome. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Where are you right now? I'm still in the same place as always. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in Williamsburg. Ah, nice. All right. Like which part of William? I mean, you don't have to say exactly. I'm not saying you have to like call out. I I don't mind. Anyone can, anyone can know. It doesn't matter. I am in, I'm on Bedford Avenue, close to um, North 8th. Jeez, what's up, fancy fans? Who's the fanciest person? You're the fanciest person in the whole world. Jeez. I try. Do you know, I used to work in that neighborhood in the in the like early to mid nineties. Oh wow. Yeah. And that... uh a little bit different. Little yeah, bit. a little bit different. I've been in the same apartment for sixteen years. Sixteen years. So what does that take you back to? Two thousand four. Okay, so two thousand four. All right, okay, so uh, was Planty Thailand still existing back then? It was. It had some kind of like swing, like swing chairs. Yeah. So, so for those that you don't know, like Williamsburg was kind of an industrial, it was like half industrial, half residential. There was still some old, like kind of Polish places. There was, um, a thrift store right off the subway where, you know, I used to go buy pants ah. when I shredded my pants at the Brooklyn Brewery was over there, still is. Uh, I I used to work for a a famous sculptor named uh, uh, John Kessler, whose Mm. studio was over there. And uh, yeah, so we used to go there. But like the restaurant that everyone was like, Planty Thailand. That was like the height (laughs) of eating in Williamsburg. So, oh, Planty Thailand. Oh, not planet. It's like plan eat. Anyway, and and like and then like they were like a little hole in the wall. And then they went through a renovation and they got big and they had some sort of sculptural boat in the middle of their thing. And it was like the place, and then yeah. uh, oh, it just went away, right? I, yeah, it's gone. I don't. I don't even know what's there now. I haven't actually been down that street for a little bit. 
yeah, and my memory gets blurred because it was so long ago, but um, I can't remember, was Kasha's Williamsburg or is that Greenpoint? No, that was Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah did, I think that was that, Williamsburg. Is that also I, gone? It, I don't think it, no, it's not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. And the thrift store's gone. The thrift store is a Chase Bank now. Oh, jeez. Yeah. This yeah. is like, this reminds me, uh, like, did you guys see that, like, a couple of days ago, Bob Dylan sold his uh, entire song catalog for $300 yeah. million? Dollars? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can't wait till like Chase Bank has Bob Dylan songs for their thing or whatever kind of cash grab, <laughs> yeah. like lunacy. And the thing is, the guy's still alive. He's gonna have to turn off his TV and like turn off the internet oh, wow. so that he doesn't see. I mean, it's only a matter of time before there's like a a, a, a GI Joe tambourine man. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know. No, no, no. Every time he sees that, he's just gonna be like, "That is the sound of money." <laughs> it's the sound of money. Yeah, so like the idea that that thrift store, which was not a bad thrift store, by the way, it was pretty no, good. No, I, I, I donated many things to it. Yeah, and it was right there. And it was an old yeah. school one. So like it wasn't like, it wasn't one of these thrift stores where you walk in and you're like, oh, that's what is nice. $50, what? No, it was like a, <laughs> a thrift store. And like you could get like if you needed a pie plate. Because how yeah. many of you, okay, let's, let's get into this for a second before we get into the book. Melissa, how many times does this happen? It doesn't happen to you because you specify glass pie plates, right? Oh, so I'm sure do, you, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll talk about this. I'm <laughs> sure, because like whenever I take a pie to someone's house, basically they get to keep the pie plate. So I can't go through glass like that. That's true. That's true. Although I do use aluminum like in a bakery, so I don't have to worry about that too. Do you use black aluminum or do you use the regular silver aluminum? The silver aluminum that you can buy at a bodega. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. If you know how to bake with it, it's fine. But, you know, for home, if you want to be perfect, um, get a glass like, plate. Like dimples and everything? Like a Greek salad tin? Or do they make one specially for pies? They make one specially for pies. All right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, how do you... So, so for those of you that, like, uh, don't think about cheat trays or whatnot, you, you have to adjust how you bake to the stuff that you're using. So if you use something shiny, it affects very much like how brown the product is going to get because it, you're reflecting away all the radiant heat from the oven. So how do you compensate if you're going to use glass, which although it takes a while to heat up, is, a, is fairly good at absorbing radiant heat. So, you know, that's going to give you a, a particular kind of brownness on the bottom of the crust. How do you adjust when you're switching to shiny disposable aluminums for your dirtbag buddies? Yeah, I actually, I think I use those aluminum tins primarily at work. So I have a convection oven. So the bake time's different in the convection oven than it is at home. So actually, I'd have to think, I think I probably bake them about the same length of time, same amount of time in the convection oven with the aluminum but then that that gets a little bit more complicated because when I'm baking pies for for work, I actually uh, freeze the I make a, a a large batch of pies and then I freeze them all and so I'm baking them from frozen in an aluminum tin versus just one pie in a glass pie plate at home. Hmm. So you're saying it's like not instantly mentally translatable, like what? They, I, I don't think so I can many do differences. that. Yeah, I can't do that right now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, for those of you that, for those out there that are, are not familiar with uh, Melissa's work, by the way, we, we have like so much like almost overlap in our lives. It's crazy. You I know. know. What I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. I was yeah. thinking about the French Culinary Institute. I think we were almost there at the same time. 
Well, you, I came on probably right after you graduated. Well, let's go through some people. First, so, so first of all, you, you started as a chemical engineer in Pennsylvania. You're from Pennsylvania, right? Correct. Yes, I did. And I started work as an engineer in Pennsylvania. What kind of Pennsylvania are you from? Are you like an Eastern or Western Pennsylvania person? I'm central. central, central, Clearfield County, Clearfield, central, west of State College. Okay. All right. All right. But then you, you went to work like literally as a chemical engineer in Allentown where they were shutting all the factories down. It's getting very hard to stay. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, what were you, what were you chemically engineering? What was your, what was your uh, Hydrogen and carbon monoxide plants for um, petroleum refining. Whoa. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that was a big business in Allentown. I always think of that as like Elizabeth or like, you know, closer to the coast. They, they, they did a lot of refining stuff over there. It wasn't, there wasn't refining happening at, it was at Air Products. So there wasn't refining happening there, but all of the design was happening there. And then all of the plants were located around the world. So I traveled to Houston a lot that year, the year I graduated from college, I was going to Houston all the time. And once I went to Korea and another time I went to um, Puerto Rico, it's just all over the place. You know who else has an Allentown connection or almost Easton connection is Nastasia. Oh, really? My mom was born there. Well, my mom lived there, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's why Nastasia will never buy an off-brand crayon, only Crayola. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then you move from there to San Diego, and that's when you decide, like, crap on this, crap on this chemical engineering stuff? Like, you, you, you weren't, weren't down with it anymore? Like, what was the career change like? Because I think we, yeah, we get a lot of career it was, changers. It, was, it took a while, actually. I actually moved to, to Berkeley, to San Francisco, and I got a job in, uh, I, got a, I got a couple of jobs in the front of the house at different restaurants in San Francisco. And I tried to make that work and that lasted for a few months. And then I got cold feet and I started to look for an engineering job and that took me to San Diego. Um, and I worked as an engineer in San Diego for a couple of years and I just didn't like it obviously. Um, and I wanted to do something more, I wanted to do cooking and I wanted to be creative and so, it was in San Diego that I started volunteering to work at this nice fine dining restaurant. Um, it's a very small restaurant and they needed somebody to do um, pastry. So that's what I did. Now, were you, this is so funny. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned this on, on, on the air before, but um, I was, when I graduated from, from college, I was a paralegal. I was the world's worst, world's worst paralegal. And <laughs> I was like, to hell with this. Because at home, like, I was baking bread all the time was what I was doing for fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is in, like, 90, whatever, 93 and okay. uh, 94. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of information. There wasn't the internet. I wasn't very good at it. That's not the point. But, like, yeah. there was a bakery in New Haven because, you know, we stayed in, in town after we graduated because my wife had, like, a really good job. At, I mean, she was my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend. But she was working for Cesar Pelli's, who's a great architect. Anyway, so, like, I had to oh, stay yeah. in town. I was a crappy... Crap, I was so bad at being a paralegal. I'm just not good at it. Uh, I think I was I, awful at being an engineer. I hated my job. I had to spec out safety valves for these large plants, and I, I hated it. I just well, don't you think be I was careful good though, at huh? it. I mean, you got to be yeah. careful. You know? Yeah, you have to be very careful. I was the, I was, my first job was as a safety engineer. Yeah, well, that's an important job. Yeah, yeah. You had to figure out how much, how far the, if the safety relief valve released, how far and in what direction would the carbon monoxide plume vent into the atmosphere? Mm. And I had to go through all of these parameters to make sure that the valve was placed in the right angle. 
that, that doesn't makes me sound feel, yeah. That makes me feel comfortable that the entry level position for engineers is safety engineer. Hey, 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 look. Throw, throw the new guy at this. Yeah, all right. Just just because she was entry level doesn't mean she wasn't skilled at it. Matt, I, I I didn't like it, but I I did my I was good at my job. I probably I'm pretty self-critical, but I I, I remember we had to be reviewed and I thought I did a horrible job and my, my boss is like, why are you being so hard on yourself? You did fine. Um, I think that's, that's the sort of the story of my life. <laughs> have, uh, have, uh, okay, well, so, so real quick, I, I threatened to leave my job and become a baker and I had it all lined up. I was going to go work, but the thing is I couldn't get up at five in the morning. You know what I mean? Like, ah. and I ended up doing database design instead, and that's how I paid to become the person that I am for those people. But yeah, I came like within oh, wow. like a hair's breadth close of like saying crap on it and going to work for who is the best, you know, the best bakery in um, New Haven at the time. Oh yeah, that's, and, that's um, so similar to me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like, but did you have to do it at like four a.m. or were you able to work like normal pastry I, people at like hours? What were you doing? I didn't. Well, I think. I'm, it's easier for me to wake up early. I'm not very good at staying up late. And so some of the jobs, I think my, well, the first job that I had in the restaurant industry in San Francisco was at Rubicon and it was a hostess job and, and it wasn't early or late. It just required people skills and being friendly to people. And I, and it's not that I'm not friendly to people. I'm a little bit introverted, but I, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great fit at all. And it, it was like, I hardly made any money. And I'm, I was just like, what am I doing? And I got cold feet and I quickly moved back into engineering. Yeah. Host is so tough. It's it so is. tough. You just don't make any, that's why like, you know, when it's the owner, like the owner, like the owner FOH does it, like that's one thing. Yeah. But like, you just don't make a lot of money. You have to like you have to like look really presentable. You're the first thing people see when when they show up. You have to be nice to people. You get all the abuse from the person that can't get the table, and you just don't make that much money. And you're yeah. the first person cut in the FOH. It's crazy. I don't understand it. I have a lot of respect for people doing the host job. You know? Yeah, it was, and I think you know. I think when I started, I was like, well, I just want to take a job and work my way up, and I want to learn about how restaurants work. But I, I would have taken a server job. I just had no skill set at that time. And the host is the job that's like the entry level front of the house job or was at the time. That was the only thing I could get. And it just it was like I didn't it was it was pretty miserable. That's mostly what I remember. I remember carrying platters of drinks to people's table um, if they were at the bar and I had to move their drinks to the dining room. And I mean, for me, that was super stressful. I'm like, I'm going to spill the drinks. Um, now I think it's sort of, I can't believe, you know, well, now is now. But back then, that was like in the 90s. That was in the late 90s. That was pretty stressful. And I just didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. Uh, so, so then you, you decide you're going to, uh, you're going to go to uh, culinary school and you ended up in New York at, uh, my old, uh, institution, the French culinary in the, yeah, you did the pastry right. program, right? Yeah, I did. I was there in 2004. Yeah. I did yeah. the pastry program. I loved it. Yeah. It's such a, sh that like in 2004, so I, I got, I came on at the end of 2004 uh, you know yeah. that school. That school is really firing on all cylinders, man. The the, the chefs there were so good. Like, uh, who did you yeah. have for pastry? Do you remember? I had Tony Lynn Dickinson. I, she was amazing, and yeah, Kier Rodriguez too. He yeah, was also awesome. Great. Love yeah. Kier. They oh were a God. team, actually. He had just started, and so they worked together. And I just I loved it so much. I learned so much from both of them. Chef Kier, ex monk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, no, they're they're great. Uh, it's such a shame what what happened. They're closing down. There, the end of that, the official end of the of the program is in December. I'm probably going to go one more time because the museum, um, the museum, like they donated their library to the museum. And guess what else oh, the wow. Museum of Food and Drink has? We have all the old DVDs of all of the old demos. Oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah. I used right. to love and, those demos. I remember Jacques Pepin. He did so many amazing demos there. I was really drawn to that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the guy is what is he like a, a million? What is he? He's like a head in a Futurama jar at this point. I think he can still bone a chicken in like seventeen yeah. seconds or something like yeah. this. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. The FCI, FCI was uh, all right. So, so you go from there, and then you went. Did you go directly to Bobo from there? No, I had a little job in between. I was working at Chelsea Market at this patisserie called Goupil and De Carlo, and I was making croissants there. Um, huh. And that wasn't a good fit for me. And I, it lasted for a few months. And then, and then I started looking for like the right job. And I really wanted to work in a bakery. But at that time in 2004 and early 2005, there weren't a lot of good bakeries to choose from in New York. And so I, I was reluctant to take a restaurant job, but I really wanted to work with Gina De Palma. And Baba was such a happening restaurant at that time that when I saw the job opening there, I'm like, oh, I, I really want to do this job. Even if it's not at a bakery, I'll learn a lot. Um, and, and it just, it opened up so many doors for me. I just, I worked so hard in that job. And, and as a result, I, the doors just opened and, and Gina, my mentor just, you know, helped me get whatever job I wanted afterwards. Now she used to come back and do demos and events at the FCI a lot. Did you meet her there? Like, like when she was doing a demo or something, or did you? I didn't. I didn't. I I met her when I trailed for the job at Bobo. I hadn't met her before, but I was familiar with her work, and I went to eat. I I went to Bobo before my trail, so I could try the desserts. Um, and I I used to do that at a lot of different places back then. Is just go sit at the bar and order desserts, so I could see what different chefs were doing. And I. I really loved, she was doing, she was very classical, but she was also employing a lot of savory ingredients. And that was new at that time. There weren't that many chefs who were doing that. And I was really drawn to that. And so I trailed with her and it, we just hit it off. And and I just started working there right away, pretty much. Yeah, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, Gina De Palma was a, like, among, among pastry chefs, just like a revered figure. Like everyone always kind of got the opinion that somehow she always, even though she was well known, she always managed to get like a little bit snubbed by like, uh, oh yeah, by I don't know awards and whatever else. I mean, it's not that she wasn't recognized, but everyone who knew her work always kind of felt that she was getting a little bit snubbed. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. That was absolutely the case. Yeah. 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 It wasn't until her cookbook came out. <laughs> that she was she finally got the recognition that she deserved. Yeah. And she was around in the era of the famous pastry chef. So like again yeah. for people who don't, you know, remember like from about 2001 or 2 to about 2008 was like the was the decade of the pastry chef, really. Like they mm. were like every, you know uh, in terms of public yeah. awareness. Yeah, you're um, right about that. No, that's so true. She was yeah. Claudia Fleming's sous chef at Gramercy Tavern. Who um, you also call out her book as being an influence for you. Yes, no, exactly. And I think that that, I think knowing that Gina had worked for Claudia was a big factor 
in in wanting to also work to in wanting to work for Gina. Yeah, and and I only knew her tangentially. Like I met her a couple of Gina, uh, but, yeah. but uh, you know, she you know tragically got sick uh, with cancer, died you know very very young, and like continued to work while she was sick. Right, it was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, she was. Yeah, no, I think she was diagnosed with cancer in two thousand eight. And then she passed away in 2015. And, and for most of that entire time, she was working. Yeah, yeah it's, nuts. it's nuts. Anyway, so yeah. go look up her work. Check, check out her work. Pastries, yeah. universally, she's universally revered in the field uh, at the time while, while she was working. Universally. Wouldn't you say that's true or no? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then from Babo, you go to work with uh, everybody's favorite bread lunatic, uh, Jim Leahy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Very, uh, very yeah. apropos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a nutbag, right? Yeah, he's crazy. But I think that's part of what makes his bread go- or what he do- does his bread good. Yeah. Yeah. Nastasia yeah. almost worked with with him, almost took a full-time job with him. She was deciding between working oh, wow. with us at the French Culinary or with him over at Sullivan up at the, in the 50, were you up in the 50, yep. 50th yeah, Street? 47th yeah, 47th Street, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she unwisely chose to come to the SCI, right, Stas? <laughs> I was working with him. I was his co-me at the opening of Co on 21st oh, wow. Street. Oh, wow, okay. And you overlapped for like a couple of months? Yeah, remember we go yeah. back and forth. Yeah, what a nut! What a nut! Anyway, he, whenever he comes on the show, he like invariably curses a, a blue streak. And we <laughs> shared an ed- we shared an editor. Uh, if you oh. ever want to see, like, get like what you want to do is Maria Gornishelli, who is yes, you know, my, that was Gina's editor too, by the way. Oh, really? Um, yeah. If I, ever, if I ever get to speak to Maria again, I'll have to ask about that. But like, <laughs> if Nastasia, Maria loves Nastasia. Like loves her. Ah. Right, I think she she signed me so that she could have lunch with Nastasia on a regular basis. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. And uh, and like Maria, so Maria Guarnaschelli was one of the great editors, cookbook editors of all time. All right, just see so if you don't know who she is, that's who she is. Um, mm-hmm. And her daughter is Alex Guarnaschelli, well-known chef. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but. She always scared the daylights out of me, Maria. Yeah. Did. Like scared the hell out of me. And one of like Nastasia's favorite things to do is we'd get Maria in a room talking about Jim Leahy. And then like the next oh, day wow. we would get Jim Leahy in a room talking about Maria. That is a fun game. Oh my right, God. Stas? I would, yes. can I be present the next time? I want to be part of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if those, those times will ever be recreated. No, that's but, true. No, it's yeah. true. Yeah, probably not. I, um, I met Maria at a food conference, a food writing conference in back in like 2001 in Napa. I think that's, a, that, that sort of is as long as I've wanted to write a cookbook. I went to a food writing conference back then and I met her there. I introduced myself. I was very, I knew who she was. I used to read the acknowledgments in all of the cookbooks that I was reading. So I knew who she was and I just introduced myself and that was pretty much it. But then I actually met her basically the second day I started working for Gina. So I knew she was, I knew her from Gina and she never ever remembered me. I kept running into her and I'd be like, she was sort of like a superstar to me because um, I really wanted to write a cookbook and I, I'd be like, there's Maria. And so I, I, I knew her through Gina, but she, she never remembered me. And then I knew that she was doing Jim's book 
And then, and I was working for Jim when he was working on his book with Maria, just sort of ironic. And then I think I ran into her at, when I was working at Roberta, she was having a lunch. And finally I, I told her again who I was. And I'm like, do you remember me? And she, I think, I don't think she remembered me, but she was so flattered that she sent me a cookbook. Oh, um, nice. yeah. yeah, it was really nice. Yeah. Well, she ate at Roberta's when Nastasia and I were talking with her because I think that ah. was when Roberta's was, was trying to pitch their book out to different publishing oh, houses. Oh, wow. Okay, so then I was there making the bread at that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right, so speaking of Leahy, while we're on the subject, one of the recipes in the book is inspired oh, yeah. kind of by the no-need stuff, so might as well knock that out while we're talking oh, yes. about it. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, you do a, so instead of uh, water, you use carrot juice in it, right? It's carrots, currants, pecan bread, and it's, but yes. it's, all, it's a classic, it's in a Dutch oven, very high hydration. Yes. Um, but so I wanted to like mention, so you talk about it for a second. One of the, the interesting things to me about it are one, it's even higher hydration than Leahy's like standard mix. And yeah. uh, you also call for bread flour instead of AP. And I'm wondering, A, is that why you have the higher hydration? And then you also use uh, rye flour on the outside as your as your dust. How messy is that sucker to flip? You want to talk about that recipe for a second? Oh, and yeah. last, it's got different size air holes in the standard uh, Leahy, so it's not as. And I wondered whether it was the ingredients that did that. It's not as one tiny bubble, one giant bubble as a lot of his stuff. Ah. It's more like a normal bread crumb. So go. Okay. Oh yeah. So let's talk about this bread. So I, it's it's with carrot juice, and it's it's not sweet. It's a savory bread. And it was, I helped Jim with all of his, when he was, when I was working for Jim, I would help him with his bread classes. And he was teaching no need bread classes. And he was, he was, all of the bread dough that we made at the bakery was no need bread dough um, that we would bulk ferment for nine hours at a time. And, um, and I was helping him with his classes and he was working on the recipes for his cookbook. And this was, this was, this is a version of a recipe that he had done and I loved it. All of Jim's flowers at that time were coming from a silo. And so it was like one type of flour. And I think, I just think over the years, I've just adapted to flours that work, I think that work best for, like I think bread flour, it takes a little bit longer for the gluten to break down with bread flour. I thought that that worked better for this. I generally try to use, well, no, that's not true. I'm very specific about my flours, but I did think that the bread flour worked best for this dough. It wasn't sort of as like wet, if you will, as like a, like if you used all-purpose flour. I use all-purpose flour. I use King Arthur all-purpose flour. That's a pretty, King Arthur all-purpose flour has a pretty high percentage protein content. I think it's more like 12.9, which is, is it 12 or no, 11.9. So it's almost 12%. That's almost like bread flour. Um, and I, I think Jim always used bran, wheat bran for everything. And I like wheat bran. I think regardless of what you do with no need bread, if it involves flipping and flour or bran, you're going to have a mess, in, a little bit of a mess in your kitchen. Oh, and yeah. so um, I, I try to keep things simple and not have too many ingredients going on. I, I feel the same about sourdough starters. I don't try to have six different starters. I try to keep it to just like one, maybe two. Um, Even professionally. Yeah, it, I've, I've had to deal with having all of these different sourdough starters professionally. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of labor. It causes a lot of, it's difficult for the bakery to maintain all of those. And so I generally try to like, like wheedle them down to one liquid starter based on wheat flour and maybe a rye starter and then um, a poolish generally. Um, and so for this dough, 
it, I, it's, you know, I have to say, I love the photo in my book of the carrot bread's beautiful, but man, that bread over fermented for me that day because I was trying to get all of the, all of the products ready for a photo shoot and also work. I was at high street. So I was also in charge of the, the production at high street. And I remember that day I was like, Oh my God, it over fermented. Is it going to be okay? And the crumbs really beautiful, but I was a little nervous. It wasn't as like I, I his bread definitely has some big holes and some little holes. And if you do the, if you do the regular white, um, white bread, if you will, um, uh, no need bread, you do get that variation. But I also think that I also think that there is, uh, and I'm just guessing here that there's residual sugar in the carrot juice that's causing it to ferment a little faster. And it, it would be more responsible for, and also the, huh, I'm going all over the place, sort of jumping all over the place. But I also think that the higher hydration also, um, is that true? See, I have to think through, I want to think through it. The higher the hydration, if you have a strong, if you have the right flour and a strong flour, it should be able to handle that. But I actually think that I probably fermented it a little too long that day. Or actually so you, not you fermented, but proofed it too long. Right. So you think that normally it would have like a little more of that big hole, little hole thing? Yeah, think I maybe, think normally yeah. it would. Yeah. I mean, like, by the way, I like all kinds of breadcrumbs. Like, I know people go like crazy. They want one specific thing. Yeah. As long as someone can control it and make it taste good, I mean, I'm for it. You know what I, I think mean? that's, um, yeah, no, I think that's the most important thing. It has to taste good. It has to look, I think it needs to have this, like, pretty, like, a beautiful rusticity to it is good. But I, it, the most important thing is how it tastes. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of which, well, we'll get to it later. So then after, after Leahy, you go to work yeah. for a different kind of crazy. You go to per se. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a different kind of crazy. I mean... One of one of the favorite people that uh, Nastasia and I worked with at SCI went to go work for Per Se, and we're like, "Dude, you nuts!" I mean, that's yeah. crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. You- it was so hard. I can't even begin to describe how how challenging it was. I learned so much. I'm so grateful for that experience, but it was really hard. Yeah, and plus, uh, what was it like working in that sp- in that space in the in the in the in the Time Warner building. I mean, that's just a, the whole thing. It's like, imagine being in that kind of a kitchen, but also ha- like in that, like the location, it seems like all kind of crazy, right? Or not? It was, it was hard. It felt like, I felt like the products felt like where we were. I don't know if that makes sense, but it felt very, the Time Warner Center is a bit like a shopping mall. And I felt yeah. like everything is on display. Everything's perfect. Everything looks perfect. And I felt like that's how my breads were too. <laughs> They were on display. I was on display while I worked, and everything had to look perfect. And 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 generally, it tasted good too. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, but like, and it's, it's so weird because you're in that area of like hyper control inside of per se, but yeah. then outside at the bakery, you're selling to people eating at cafe tables in a mall. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's I just do. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's hard. Yeah. 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 So then. In, and so you, you were like, and uh, you were the you were the head baker there, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. And then you went from there to Roberta's. Oh my God! What are you like? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm probably pretty crazy. <laughs> you I mean, know, like, I'll, you know what? 
I'm, I feel like I'm pretty ambitious with my career. And I really, I like this opportunity per se to be the head baker came up. And I have to say, I had hardly any experience baking bread and managing a team at the time that I was hired. Like I had only been working, I was hired in 2008. I started working at Bobo in 2005. That's only three years. And I only worked at Sullivan for one year. And they needed somebody who understood bread and understood fine dining and had that skill set. And I, I had a good tasting. I presented myself well, um, neat and tidy. Um, and, and I was hired, but I wasn't prepared to manage even a small team at per se. There was so much pressure on my shoulders and it, it was, it was a big learning curve for me. It was hard, but I'm grateful. I'm really grateful for the, for the opportunity. But then I was pregnant. I got pregnant while I was at per se, and I wasn't sure how I was going to handle my pregnancy, but I did leave per se. And I took time off because I don't think, I don't think it would have been realistic at all to have had a baby and continued to work as a head baker at per se. I just don't see how it could have worked. I was working like 14 hour days not taking it was lucky if I had a day off a week and I don't know how you can divide your time between having a you can't have it all I don't think you could have that job that particular job and have a newborn and so I wasn't sure what I was going to do I was pretty burned out um and I I was like well I'm burned out but I still really want to make the kind of bread that I want to make and right around that time I got uh I got an email or a, a text message from a friend of mine saying that Roberta's was looking for a head baker. And that was appealing to me because I live in Williamsburg and it's not that far away. So, and they didn't care what I did. Uh, <laughs> Honestly. That, that checks out. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah. They said, I, we don't care what you do. We just need you to sell some bread. Just make some bread for the restaurant. We don't care. And I was like, okay, well, this is like, this is like, my free card to do whatever I want and I can create my own schedule around my child. And that was really like one of the most important things for me at that time was to create a schedule so I could be home as much as I could to take care of my son. And so I stayed there for, and I, I, it was a different kind of crazy per se was crazy. Everywhere is crazy in the restaurant industry in New York, I think sometimes, but um, Roberta's was definitely a different kind of crazy, but I also, you know, I also got to start to make my own things. I don't feel like anything that I made it per se was, it's not true. I mean, I did make, I did make my own breads there, but really something that reflected me, I feel like that was what happened at Roberta's was the, the products that the, 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 the bake bakery items that I was making really reflected me. So you think like Roberta's at its best, like as a concept. And so like, you know, I don't know, like I'm always with, with, with Nastasia at Roberta's and especially because we've been going for how many years? Oh, yeah. Stas? Over 10. How many years? We've, 10, 10, 10 something years. Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah. <laughs> we're like, how is this possible? Right. It's like, how, like, how are they not getting, like, they, they're not following any rules. How are they not getting shut down, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> how are they able to just like do all this stuff that doesn't make any sense? Like in terms of, you know, if, if it makes sense yeah. from an outsider perspective, but if you're, you know, even like tangentially involved in the business, you look at it, you're like, how are they doing this and not getting like <laughs> sm- smacked around by the authorities that be or whatnot? But you're, but at its best, it really you think allowed you to kind of 
be who yeah. you were. Like their their lack of rules allowed you to be who you wanted yeah. to be. That's a, it's nice. Yeah. At the time, I was baking in a wood fired oven that was outside in a shipping container and that's pretty illegal as far as I can tell. Like there was no, there was, there was no one was monitoring that oven. It was just sort of out there and we'd build a fire in it. And then I'd go out in the, in the early morning and clean it out and bake some bread in it. And, and I remember, I remember we'd be careful, you know, like it's in the yard. This sounds awful to say, but the DOH would come by, but they would come by to Roberta's and not to the yard. Um, and I think that that was sort of part of it at the time, but you know, the the rent, the rent was so low there. It was just incredible. I still remember that I seeing the numbers and I still remember the numbers, just incredible how low it was that it made so many things possible because the rent was so low. Well, they, they, uh, didn't they, Nastasia, didn't they like redesign the entire courtyard to take advantage of a fancy pigeon that had like decided it was going to live in that yard? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I don't remember that. <laughs> uh, it was like, or it seemed like that. Like, I don't know. Yeah, man. no, I would believe it. I believe it. I, maybe I was, was I still there at that time? I'm not sure. <laughs> that fancy pigeon. It was a very fancy pigeon. I will have to I, say the pigeon was extremely fancy. <laughs> so I then you hooked that. up with Major Food Group and did Sidel's, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I still, I still haven't been because I know that I will bankrupt myself on salmon if I go. Oh, that's Nastasia has been several times. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So I, I wanted to leave her, I was ready to leave Roberta's. So, you know, I'm a career changer. So I just remember I had just turned 40 and I was, it was New Year's day. It was like two in the morning on New Year's day. And I was like dealing with a lot of people who were still at Roberta's partying. I was just trying to get my bake done. And I'm like, I'm sort of done with this. I'm done with this. I said, I'm a grown up now. <laughs> I'm done. I need to leave. I need to get my own business started. And so my idea was at the time was I'm going to do something. At, I'm going to sell bagels at the Williamsburg Smorgasburg while I work on a business plan. And I, I knew that the bagels were a good idea, but I didn't know how, like, I didn't know if they, how, how they would catch on. And I just thought it was, oh, this is a good idea. People want something small that they can take away at the, at the Smorgasburg. And, you know, at that point, New York Magazine, um, uh, Robin Reisfeld and, and Rob Patronite were fans great, of Roberta's. Great people, by the way. Great people. Yeah, I love them so much. And they were the first ones to really write about my stuff. And they picked up that I was at the Smorgasburg and they went with it and they included it in their magazine. And I, it was through that article in the magazine that I was connected to an investor for the major food group who connected me to the major food group partners and I dropped some bagels and sticky buns off to them. They were sold and we agreed. I thought I, we agreed to partner. I thought partnering with them was a good idea at the time. And so we partnered in 2013 and we spent two years designing and recipe testing Sedell's and we opened it up in the fall of 2015. Yeah. So I have to say this. So for those of you that don't know, like major food group is like uh, Carbone, Terezi, all of this, and anything they take on, they take on kind of in a in a big way. Yeah. And this was like their, you know, your and their take on kind of like what would it, you know, kind of like deli on crack, right? I mean, like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, but it, like the other thing is strange is that it was kind of like all your stuff in the daytime and then a different restaurant at night, right? Yeah, it was. It was like, oh, yeah, it was like a, a uh, like a New York deli with bagels and locks during the day. 
And at night, it was this Russian restaurant that it never never really caught on. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you know what people like? They like bagels and lox, it turns out. It's true. I don't know whether you know this, uh, yeah, but you know. So now I ha we have to get down to bagels. We're going to have to have a little bit of a bagel oh, uh, thing. I, oh, yeah. I read through this book twice. Yeah. Oh, I looked yeah. in the index. Yep. No bagels. No bagels. That's Are you right. contractually obligated to not write a bagel recipe? Oh, I held back on the bagels. They're in book number two. All right. All right. Because yeah. you, you do have boiled doughs. You do do pretzels. Yeah, no, the bagels are so, there's so much for me to say about bagels. And to me, bagels are really savory. And I wanted to include more savory recipes with the bagels that they didn't feel like they belonged in this book. This book's more sweet. It's got sweet cookies, pies, laminated pastries. And I just felt like bagels deserve their own book. So they're I mean, not you, in you this have, book. You have like, you know, you have some savory stuff in I this do, book though. I do, I do, I do. But I not just, like, the way that yeah. I felt that bagels, otherwise it'd be like a thousand page book. <laughs> so you're um, going to do like a bagel only book for book two? Book two is going to be bread and bagels are bread, by the way. Yeah, and yeah. so and so there will be sour, like really sourdough bread, um, baguettes, bagels, like things that are like really more bread baker focused to bake at home. And and I'll probably do some fun sandwiches too, but not not really sweet things. Hmm. So now on bagels, you uh, I gather are not a fan of the SS style puffy bagel. No, or no. you don't want to make it yourself. I'm not saying you hate them, but that's not what you're interested in making. Let's put it that. Way. I, I yeah, I want to make good bagels that are true to New York. Well, but at this point, S has been around since what? I mean, at this point, it is a New York style. That's true. I'm looking at, yeah, no, that's true. You know, I mean, like, I get what you're saying. And like yeah. a lot of the old, like, who do you, who do you like other than your own stuff? Who do you like in the city? I like Absolute Bagels. Oh, what's up? Like, <laughs> do you ever live up there? No, I've got people bringing them down to me. <laughs> but the thing is, Absolute, those guys started at Essa. They changed oh, their stuff. Oh, that's interesting. They started, okay. Oh, I that's think, interesting. Unless I'm getting confused. No, no, no I believe that. I believe you. Yeah, that makes they're, sense. They're run by a Thai family, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. they are. I've yeah. been and getting then, their bagels yeah. and sort of looking at them, and I've been thinking about my own bagels, and I'm working at, at Gertie right now, by the way, and we're working on a bagel recipe, and I'm excited about it because I wanted to change my bagel recipe a little bit and make it a little bit more. You know, what happened... What happened was I was making the bagels at Sedell's and then I also made them at High Street on Hudson. And um, what, the owner of Bubby's came in. He read an article about me being at High Street and he, he had my bagels and he started telling me about, he grew up in the city and he was telling me what bagels were like in like the 70s or 80s and how that was just, he, he used to just get this bag of like really hot doughy like bagels. And he was just talking about how doughy they were. And I was really intrigued by what he said. I'm like, you know, I really, I'm always, I, I really love food, food culture and food history. And I was like, oh, I, I'm really intrigued by this. But, you know, my bagels aren't like that. I like my bagels, but I'm wondering if I changed them, how would I change them? Would I try to make them more like, like those bagels you'd get in before they got really oversized, but like maybe they'd be like bagels from like the eighties size wise, but have flavor to them. And so I've been yeah. thinking about that lately. Trying to make them more like bagels. New York bagels. 
Yeah, I mean, the 80s puffies ba- puffy bagels, as I remember them, a lot of them were like a little bit sallow and not just puffy, but like doughy in the under, in the underbaked, in the gummy sense. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, it's how, how are you baking the bagel? And I know bagels are trendy to bake right now with bread bakers, but like how do, how our bagels are not supposed to be baked like a loaf of bread, actually, because people don't want an artisanal thick crust on them. I feel the same about a baguette actually, because those are those are such a thin piece of bread that if you try to achieve a really thick crust on them, like a bread baker would an artisanal loaf of sourdough, it's too thick, you're gonna tear your teeth out. And then that's not what people want out of a bagel. Um, they want something squishy and they want some doughiness. It's just how much doughiness is the right amount of doughiness. But do you, do you like blistering on a, on a bagel crust or no? I do, but it really depends on the type of oven that you're baking it out of. What are your thoughts on the... uh, Go, 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 go. (laughs) Well, you know, if you're... I get blisters if I bake it in a convection oven um, really pretty easily. I don't get blisters when I bake it in a bagel oven. It's the way the the dough is moving through the chamber. Um, And I know that those are both types of convection, but there is some, there is a difference and I don't get blisters in a, in a bagel oven. So I think it depends on the oven that you're using. Like if you're going to bake bagels on rotary decks, they bake them on like revolving. Yeah. Rotary decks. Exactly. So the, the deck goes around like a Ferris wheel. Um, and it has this like heat source at the bottom of the oven down, you know, down near the bottom, like, like any home oven would. Um, and then the bagels just rotate on this deck. Um, until they're baked. And what I thought was really interesting because I did so much testing of bagels. Um, I did so much testing of bagels on um, in a convection oven, a blodget, because that's what I had. But then when I switched over to this revolving tray oven, the bagels got really pale. They got shiny. They were shiny and pale. They weren't taking on color just because of the way they were moving around in the oven. And then I would bring the bagels around to different bagel shops and this is with Sidel's some R&D before we opened and I would bake the bagels in their ovens and I'd use their kettles of water and every bakery was offering me to add sugar to the water, to some type of sweetener to the water, whether it's like barley malt syrup or brown sugar. Everyone had their own concoction. I'm like, oh, well, this is is to brown it up. Exactly. I was like, this is pretty fascinating. There's no other reason except to cause some browning. Um, And I thought that that was pretty interesting. Huh. It is interesting. Yeah. Uh, And so, so like all the people who freak out that you need malt, it's just any reducing sugar in that water is going to, is going to do the browning for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, What are your thoughts on the Montreal style of bagel? This is a, a I like the size. I like, Mm -hmm. you know what? I love when the sesame seeds hit the wood fired oven and they're toasted on the bottoms and the tops. I really think that that's that's cool. I think the I like the flavor there. I wish that they had more salt in the dough, mm-hmm. um, and I don't I don't necessarily like how they're. I, if I remember, the ones that I've had are are a little sweet, um, maybe a little too sweet for me. But I like the size. What's with the lack of salt? Have you ever had anyone accurately describe why they do that, or is it just their ornery? I think it's just the way. That, I don't. I think it's the way the recipe developed there, and I don't think I think a lot of like look at. 
like maybe maybe I have too much of a salted palate at this point because if I if I go to Europe, at, well, <laughs> when I was going to France and eating in France, I was noticing I'm like, wow, like my palate's really salty. I need more salt in a lot of things that I used to not need. And if you look at old recipes for like pastries, there's no salt. Salt's sort of a new thing. I feel like more salt being added to baked goods is a newer a newer thing. And I I just think it's the history of how salt came to be in the Montreal bagels or there was no salt in the bagels. Some whoever whomever started making them just didn't make them with salt. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes progress is progress. Salt is a good thing. Yeah, I think so too. Speaking of progress, you uh, you say that you've switched out of cornstarch for the for the vast majority are using arrowroot. You really think it's worth the extra money? Um, I like it. It's yeah. not, not that much money I get. Because it's not that much more money. Yeah, I don't think I used that much arrowroot. It lasts a long time. Ditto for the cornstarch. Like I'm not using those all the time. So you're not a fan of the cornstarch swap in a in a flour recipe. I yeah, I think I try to I try you know, I do use cornstarch, but I think for the most part if I can swap it out or try to swap it out, I'll I'll swap it out. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You really uh, read my book. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> This episode brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean that we're throwing less food away, it also means we throw away less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us to conserve our precious resources to ensure that we have fresh food to meet our growing needs. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Oh, uh, Chad had a question about... Bring it ultra low sodium diets any suggestions for baking for people on ultra low sodium diets bread in particular but also other items salt is so vital for so many formulas and i haven't found much way around it ah uh, i i remember at when i worked at per se we had to accommodate every diet and i remember i had a saltless bread i don't think that there's i think that you can you know you're not going to get the same thing you can totally reduce the amount of salt or maybe take it all out and you're not going to get the same product and the bake isn't going to be the same and the browning isn't going to be the same. But that's not to say that you can't make a good loaf of bread without salt. And I remember at Sullivan Street Bakery, we made the um, the green olive loaves and the green olive rolls. There was no salt in that dough because he relied on the salt from the olives. And I really loved how, and, and that's true for Italian breads where there's a lot of like salty like, like ingredients or, or cheese or whatever you're going to put on the bread itself, that they don't salt the bread. And there's something about that that I like. I think, I think if I was going to do more like salt-free baking, I'd start to in- explore like Tuscan style of breads because they don't use salt in their baking. Yeah, unfortunately for them, right? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I'm sorry. Look, if you have a thing, you have a thing. I, I don't mean to be a jerk about it. Uh, but you yeah, hate that's a Tuscan tough one. bread dish. I uh, detest. <laughs> I detest it. That's pretty I've funny. I've had it in Tuscany. 
I'm oh, like, wow. oh, I have it in America and I hate it. Let me go to Tuscany. I'm sure it's good there. Nope. Oh, wow. Do you eat it and, with salty things or are you, you're just eating it plain? I've tried it plain. I've tried it with uh, a nice pecorino. I have tried it with olives. And every time I've tried it, I was like, you know what would be nicer if this bread had flavor? Oh, no. You know I, what I mean? Like, I had the absolute bagels and I was like, whoa, there's hardly any salt in this dough. I, I was very intrigued by that. I was like, well, there really isn't much salt in these bagel in this bagel dough. And I'm like, that's very interesting. And sometimes I wonder, so I get a lot of accolades for my, my stuff, but I'm like, is it because I'm using more salt? Like, is, am I balancing the salt out? And then, you know, I, I wonder about that because I use more, I use more salt than, than some bakers do. Yeah. 2.2. Like usually people top out at 2% and you're at a 2.2, you're a full Oh, no, no, that's 2.2 is exactly what Jim Leahy used. And then I think Uh. when I got to per se, they were like, no, no, that's not enough. You need to add more. And they were kept making me add more salt to the point where I'm like, no, absolutely not. So what's your standard? Like what's your what's your mental go to per salt percentage? Somewhere between 2.5 and 3 but not Ooh. above three. But then if you have a lot of add-ins in your, your form, and that's baker's percentage. So say you yeah. have a lot of nuts and seeds, then you take the total the total weight of the dough and you take the percentage at 1.1%. And I can cross compare that with like 2.5% and I take the higher amount. It's, Does yeah, so it's like, a, it, people, so on salt, like anything over three is going to start messing with the yeast though, right? Yeah, it does. I remember because I got to experiment a lot with salt and dough at per se because everybody, they, the, my, my, my bosses just wanted so much salt and then the, the, the actual dough would start to be affected by the amount of salt. And I remember that the baker before me at per se, he's like, well, just say you're going to add more salt, but make it the same and then tell them that you added more salt and see if they taste it and like it. And if they say, oh, this is good, then don't change the salt. So I think I did try that a couple of times. It worked. Huh. Well, yes, I'm, I'm usually like a, almost like a flat two. Maybe I'll try going, I'll try ah. going higher. Like my ment- my mental, my mental brain, my, my like recipe yeah. brain works at a flat two, but oh, I, wow. I, you know, I would try, never, but, but, I almost never use two at this point. I think I always assumed based on what I learned at Sullivan, that it should be 2.2. And then because I was at per se, I was like went up to 2.5. I think, I feel like tartine, I think Chad's formulas are at least 2.5. They're, they're above two, I think. I have to like go back and look. I've never had his bread. I'm only looking at his, his cookbook recipes. I have had a loaf of his bread once, but I can't remember. I wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, where, where's the salt? It just, it felt really balanced to me. Um, yeah. yeah. I use salted butter though, which I know you'd hate. Oh no, I That's love the one thing I, re- I, I refuse to b- bow to professional uh Oh, you mean when you're advices. baking, you put yeah. it in your, oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. I only stock one kind of butter in the house. Booker uh. will not eat unsalted butter. And so I just do everything with salted butter. Oh, wow. Well, that makes sense. I have, I get the fancy French, like butter from Brittany and I, I, the salted butter. And I, I usually smear that on my toast. Uh, nice. Well, speaking of uh, that, you have uh, the, all these recipes, which, you know, I've never tasted one of these. The Queen, Queen Amman, which is yeah. pro- spelled K-O-U-I-G-N-A-M-A-N-N. Yes. So, why there first of all in the re, in the book those things are just so freaking pretty. They're so pretty. <laughs> they you know are what I mean? pretty. 
You, you want to describe this for it's a newer it's a newish thing in the U.S. Yeah, it's but a, I'm sure it's a John trend, has had it because trendy. he's a Frenchy French. It's, so yeah, it's a yeah. new trend in the U.S. and it comes from and it comes from Brittany in France and it's it's Breton um, and so it translates to butter cake broken is it br- butter cake because Brittany part of France is known for their butter production and so the Queen Amon in Brittany are not like the trendy things in my cookbook. Um, They're like way more classic, big, large, round ones and just really full of butter and caramel and sugar. Um, I guess caramel, caramel, not caramel in the tradition, like caramelized from the baking actually. Um, and I I liked, I liked the Queen Amon that I had been trying around first in the city here and then I was in France and I was trying them in France and I'm like oh these are really good and I think I just started playing around with the recipe yeah but and the ones you have it's like folded almost like a dumpling fold in it's like yeah layered and then folded in so it has this kind of awesome look yeah when you when you when you guys get her book check it out it it's real pretty made me want to have one but the one thing that I'm sure Nastasia would love to have because she is a huge fan of this. You do a Concord grape pie, but what a pain in the butt that looks like. <laughs> it's true. It's a pain. I'm sorry. Nastasia, she sorry, freezes. Not sorry. <laughs> she freezes Nastasia yeah. and then cuts each individual oh Concord grape in half and takes every freaking <laughs> wow. seed out. Yeah, wow. I do do that. But now you you can buy seedless Concords. I think they're called Concords. They're not real. They don't huh. taste the same. They're no, not they're as not good. quite the same. You're right. They don't have, they're not quite the same. But if you were so opposed to doing this with your grapes, but you just had to make a grape slab pie, you could get I, Mars grapes or, or Tom Cord grapes. And, and I mean, Tom, Tom Cord's, Nastasia would punch me in the face if I handed her a Tom Cord <laughs> because she is like, Nastasia Lopez is an aficionado of Concord grapes. Ah, uh, yeah. And if you live in a place where Concords grow or near it, there is very little that is more intoxicating than walking into a farmer's market when the Concords hit yeah. and just having that boom, if you don't mind the bees, because yeah. bees just like yeah. swarm in. Like, in, in fact, um, I remember we had a Concord drink at the bar and... Uh, uh, and we would open the packages from the farmer's market and bees would fly out into the park. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. Yeah, because so Yeah, there are a lot of bees. Yeah, the bees love them. Um, yeah. I, yeah, at the market, you always have to be careful. And so, yeah. Yeah. So the freezing is just to keep them in shape while you're cutting them? Yeah. Have you ever tried to take the seeds out of a Concord grape? Because the skin separates super easily from the middle, but then you can't get the seeds out of the middle. They're like stuck. There. Yeah, and I never, the I only never way to get them out, really, unless you want to eat the seeds. So I was yeah. at when I was at Babo. This was our this was our process. Every evening, um, while we were waiting for the dessert orders to come in, we had to we had to grab a quart container of grapes and 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 take the seeds out of them. It, we were making a schiacciata dessert at Babo, and then when I got to Sullivan Street Bakery, Jim was like, "No, no, we're not doing that." He just ate the grape seeds and all. Well, he's a lunatic. <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah. Yeah. I, I find Concord grape seeds to be an unpleasant texture. I agree. I can't I can't do it. I just don't want it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh 
if Nastasia and I ever work in a kitchen environment together again, where we have other people who will do that work for us, maybe we'll try that recipe. That's a good idea. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so also, um, so other things that are uh, interesting, Hala, you do a lot of stuff on Hala. You have uh, like yeah. a lot of good braiding pictures. You have some s- severe braiding <laughs> skills there. Yes, I do. Have you seen my hair? Uh, no, no, not recently. Yeah, no. I usually wear a bun and it's usually braided. And well, that's sort of a joke, but I yeah. guess the braiding and the Hala, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, I have all of these different experiences um, working in different different types of bakeries and restaurants here in New York. And I enjoyed making challah a lot. I like love my recipe. Um, it's a sourdough challah. And I, and I also spent a lot of time teaching, teaching bakers how to braid the challah. And, you know, that's to me, that's the fun part of it. Yeah, I think I feel like a lot of people are going down a, a hollow hole during this COVID time, so they should get your book and check out the the braiding on it. Yeah, now, a couple more things before before we before we get kicked off. First of yeah. all, your hot dog buns. You don't use potato starch or flour like you know. So like normally when I'm incorporating potato, you use actual cooked potato in your hot dog oh, buns. Yeah. And get this, people. She cooks them, then uh, lets them cool down, and then beats them with the skins on she's using yukons but she beats yeah. them with the skins on what's that all about what 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 is there what, well potatoes are starch right they just absorb right. into the dough um and i think right, you know, be- i, I yeah. had learned that a long time ago i made a sourdough a uh, sourdough potato loaf at per se and that's that was the that was the process is you just to save time the mixer is so powerful you don't try to don't try to mash the potatoes you're just wasting time just throw and i love the skins are so flavorful just throw the whole potatoes in and there you go and i i really love that idea of using whole potatoes in the dough like that and i think even my gluten-free bread my my i think my trick is to put roasted potatoes in the dough because it just adds more flavor it's also starch it's like vitamin food for your you know for your dough and right right yeah well it's pre it's pre-cooked so especially in a gluten-free it's going to give you the structure that you're not going to have because you've already functionalized the starch yeah exactly yeah but uh so but this wouldn't work with burbanks though because the skin's too thick right uh well yeah you you want something with a thin skin and do you find that on your hot dog buns that you have to be more careful with the temperature with convection with the potato? Do they get browner faster? Um, with the buns, hmm, that's a good question. I haven't, some of the, yeah, I would say yes, absolutely. But I think I play around with the convection oven quite a bit with the baking because I'm always I'm always a fan of trying to keep the, the inside of it as moist as possible. And when you're doing, you're baking in a convection oven, you've got the air circulating, things can get dried out. So I think... I used to be, I used to bake in the convection oven at 350 for like 15 to 20 minutes. And then recently I've increased the temperature to 375 and then I reduced the baking time because it doesn't take as long. And then it's darker on the outside and just more moist, a little moister on the inside. All right. Oh, there's a, there's a, you have a, a whole section on, speaking of pains in the butt, but a very detailed section on panatone in, yes. in uh in in the book including like how to put the skewers how to turn it upside down yeah you have a hilarious you have a hilarious uh <laughs> part where you like in order to get the percentages normal 
you literally say, take 220 grams of the dough and throw it away. You're like, I, you're like, you don't have to throw it away. You can make donuts. Just get it out. Get it out. Get it out of me. Make it go away. You know what I mean? It's a hilarious no, no, section. That's true. Because- I'm glad you're laughing about that because, you know, I think when my editor saw that, she's like, people won't throw dough away, Melissa. And I think I just do everything in such large batches in the bakery. And this came from the bakery. And I was like trying to make it friendly for home bakers and trying to bring down the percentages. But I needed a certain amount to be like pre-fermented and finally I'm like no 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 we're just gonna do it the way I do it in the bakery and we don't really throw away a huge amount at the bakery we have this little little extra piece and usually I just give it to my team and they can make staff meal from it or they have fun with it they do whatever they want with it and I was like well what am I gonna do with this extra piece of dough if I say throw the dough away in a cookbook that's sort of sacrilegious and so I was just trying to figure out what would I want to do with the dough if I had to make staff meal with the extra dough and I think donut. I like donuts. So yeah, if you have a fryer going for sure. Yeah. So while we're on Panettone and it's like, like it looks like a real deal recipe and the pictures, everything looks real deal. Where do people get those liners anyway? Just get them on the internet now? Yeah, you can get them on the internet. I used to get them at New York Cake and Baking um, in the city. If it's still open, it probably It is still open. Yeah. Uh, They've reopened. And I I feel that since they've moved locations, Uh, they're not as viciously mean as they used to be. Oh, yeah. No, that's true. It's very different at their new location. And I think I used to hate the hell out of them. Yeah, I know. They're not very nice. Yeah, they can be mean. Um, And they're hurt with most people. And I think that they have changed. They probably have a a slightly different, maybe the staff is different. But yeah, you can get the Panettone Panettone liners there. And you can get all different, they're all different sizes. I think you can get them on Amazon at this point too. Um, And I don't think they, uh, yeah, I don't think they have the giant no baby stroller sign anymore. I just, just oh, (laughs) it's like, you know, dudes. Anyway. Yeah. 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 But like, yeah, so like the turning upside down, otherwise the sucker's going to deflate, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's happened to me so many times at home. I'm like, oh, damn it. Like I just made this beautiful loaf of bread and I just took it out of the oven and I wasn't ready to turn it upside down quite yet. And it already deflated. And and that's one where you use bread flour for the structure, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, So we have a question that's been floating around for weeks Uh that I have not answered. I haven't answered any questions, outside questions this week, but... Uh, Michael Vahabi wrote in, uh, Hey, uh, Dave and Nastasia, I've been making a panettone this year using a stiff starter or a pasta madre. I'm hoping you can shed some light on why the stiff starter, and you wrote about this in the book, which yes. is why I'm pitching this to you, on why the stiff starter is maintained in water and why it's necessary to give the occasional bath and very dilute sugar solution. So far, it's been working, and they have a great rise and low acid, but is all this necessary? It feels like nonsense folk science to me. Thanks, Mike from Toronto. So maybe you can talk about why it's stiff, which you talk about in the yeah. book, but then maybe whether some of these other things are actually necessary. Well, I think it's it's historical, right? You had a stiff starter and you were the baker and you had to do everything and you're basically sleeping in the room where you're baking in. And so you needed something where you didn't have to feed it so much. So the less water and the more flour you give it, the stiffer it is, the less you actually have to feed it. It's actually, it was... It, it made sense from like a workload. It made it easier. But, you know, anytime you have something that's stiffer like that, you have a different flavor profile. You usually have more acetic acid in, in dough that has more stiffness um, because of the, it ferments more slowly. It, get, it, it has more bacteria and it, it produces acetic acid as a result. And so, but I think, I think I wanted just an approachable, like if you're making it at home, you could go the route of, 
of making a really, really traditional panettone. And I wanted to do that, but I also wanted to make it approachable, like approachable for somebody at home and approachable for me, actually. And so approachable for me means not have not converting because remember what I said in the beginning, I really abhor when there are like five different starters that you have to maintain. And so there's no way I'm going to have uh, uh, a stiff starter going and a liquid starter going and a, a whole wheat stiff starter going and a spelt starter going. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have just one starter, but then if I need to convert it to my, to my recipe, and I found that this one works better if you do convert the your liquid starter to a stiff starter that I would convert it. And then I also, you know, I also add yeast to my panettone, commercial yeast. And traditionally it's supposed to be solely raised with, um, with the, with the sourdough starter. Yeah. A lot of people are afraid to do that. And Hey people, it works. Yeast and sourdough works. Yeah. No, I think, I think I got a question recently because they're like, you can put yeast and sourdough starter and it doesn't kill it. And it's, it's so, so much of a bakery thing. I think all, all professional bakers do that because it controls the fermentation. If you have yeast, it ferments it a little faster, depends on the amount of yeast you use, but also that changes the thickness of the crust. So like most bakeries use a combination of the two. And so I use a combination of the two in all of these recipes. I don't think there's one recipe in this book that is just sourdough starter. And I think that that was one of the things that was important to me in this book, which is more of a, a sweet baking book, was to not have it all just because once you start to talk just about sourdough starter and that's the only thing that's leavening your bread, you have to get more technical about it and be more, not that this book isn't already precise enough, but you need to know what you're doing. And there's more, I, there is more science to it. Yeah. Uh, so, and uh, we, we, here's, I don't know, there's that Nastasia dinging me, uh, dinging me away. So here's, <laughs> here's, wait, hold on, hold on. We do have to go, hold sir. Hold here's a, here's a piece of writing. When you see writing like this, you know you're dealing wait, with someone. I got someone. disconnected. I don't know why. Oh, you got this? Oh. Uh, here's writing that's clearly from a professional. I love this. To me, this is the kind of uh, insight that you hear only from pros. Uh, so there's a recipe for tahini white chocolate chunk, but you like, you'll understand why, but it's like, <laughs> Not long ago, this is the quote, not long ago, it seemed like all of a sudden, many bakers I know started baking with tahini. And this is what it is like in the real professional world. It's like you're sitting there, you're doing your work, yeah. and all of a sudden, this recipe starts popping up all, like this ingredient starts popping yep. up all around. It happens with, in baking, it happens in kitchens. Yeah. But I think the average person at home, they only notice this stuff when it's on the internet, but these things are, it's not an internet thing. This has been happening since before people were sharing recipes on the internet. Things just blossom and bloom. Yep. Yeah, and so you, true. Very, you, yeah, you very rarely see people write about it in the way that you wrote about it. And I'm like, ah. yeah, oh, that's, that's an experience nice I understand. That's yeah. really nice to hear. I'm like, am I following? I usually try not to follow trends and I'm like, but you have to, to a certain degree. And I'm like, am I a trend follower that I want to use tahini in a, in a cookie recipe? And I think I wanted to be able to rationalize it to myself. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know. It's like when you're doing any of this stuff long enough, you just realize it's so weird how these things like all of a sudden float into existence and no, then float true. out again. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. I just used ube powder in a shortbread cookie. <laughs> and I was like a year ago, I'm like, I am not using ube. I refuse. I'm not making anything ube. And now here, look, I've got an ube cookie and I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's funny. Uh, so are there any recipes that are going to kick, kick us off soon? Any recipes I haven't brought to attention that, uh, that, uh, you, you really want people to know about? 
I, I like but, that you covered the panettone. I like that you covered the Queen Amon. Those are like really, and I like that you touched on some of the bread recipes too. That's cool. I like that. And what, and obviously you're, you're a, I mean, if you look at the cover, you're a babka lover. You're a babka style person. I didn't yeah. mention that. But you have several different, not just several different types of babka, babka several styles of dough for babka. You're like, yeah. it's like a, there's, it's, it's quite in depth on the babka. So I yeah. didn't bring that up. Yeah. yeah well, and this book you is know, not light, by the way. People listen to this. Uh, that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, the book, I, you made I the know. book sound. Yeah, it's a heavy book. Yeah. Bobka, I started making bobka before it became trendy, and I wrote a really good recipe for the bobka that was featured in Food & Wine magazine in January of 2016, and it was such a well-written recipe that they put the bobka on the cover in January on Food & Wine magazine, which is pretty unheard of for a sweet to be on a, a magazine in January. And it just sort of blossomed into this babka trend. And I had no idea it was going to be a trend, but I had been making these very like Ashkenazi styled babkas, like so so bready, not not laminated babka for for Sidels. And then I just everybody loved it so much that I just started making different flavors and chocolate and cinnamon and then just went from there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Who's a, who's a, you call for unbleached uh Pastry, uh, whole wheat pastry flour. Who do you use? Do you use Bob's? I I use Bob's. Yeah, absolutely. And it, when I'm here in New York, I'll use um, uh, uh, it's a local, like a local whole wheat pastry flour. You can substitute all-purpose flour if you can't find whole wheat pastry flour, because I know that that can be a little bit tricky. All right. Several times in the book, you mentioned that you don't own a blender. Why the hate? I like. Oh. You have a, I have a small apartment. There's no hate. It's just, you know, I'll do stuff at work. I have a RoboCoop at work. I have um, a Vitamix at work. But at home, I just don't have enough space. And I found that I can mostly do everything in a food processor at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, you, uh, like, like all great pastry chefs I've known, have something against beet sugar. What is it? Oh. You call out cane several times. <laughs> I, I don't even know why anymore. I think I used to know why maybe 15 or 20 years ago. There it was about the process and the aftertaste. And I'm trying to remember whose book I would have read would have given me the idea that beet sugar was bad. Maybe I they don't. They used to say it through a scum during boiling work, right? So yeah. like they, they, they used to say like, uh, and at the FCI they used to teach us. Maybe that's where uh, we yeah. both kind no, of there got was, it. It definitely went, it goes way back to the time that I was living in San Francisco. And, and I was just like, oh, no, no, I've got to get cane sugar. But now I don't even know why. So but I think that, the, I yeah. think you're right. It must, that must be part of it. Well, the, the, I mean, I, I've never, uh, you know, thankfully for, for me, never had to spend like day after day boiling sugar, but that's what they, that's yeah. what they really used to say. It was a kind of a, a, a big deal. Oh, wow. All right. So, uh, I didn't answer hardly any questions, uh, okay. that came in and I'm also probably not going to answer that many next week because next week we have, uh, Joey Skladani on. Joey wrote a book called, uh, Basic, now John, it's basic bitching, right? Base, basic bitching. Like now listen, normally people, this is like normally like what we what we were talking about today, a good bake with Melissa Weller is more normally our, our speed, right? Uh, but I received uh, Joey's book and I read it. I have to say the, the attitude of it is, you check it out beforehand, the attitude of it is uh, he, you know, he spends his day writing and thinking about like high-end, well-thought-out food, and he wants to come home and just be a basic, you know, whatever. So, uh, which, by the way, uh, I can appreciate that, especially yeah. in, in the COVID times. So, uh, 
Joey's going to be on uh, on the next one, but this week we've had uh, Melissa Weller with her new book, A Good Bake, which was featured by the New York Times, was it not? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yes, featured by the New York Times. Fantastic. Pick it up at, uh, you know, if you can, if you live in New York, get it from Kitchen Arts and Letters. Support those folks. It's a big, hefty book with a nice, what do you call this color anyway? What is this? It's not peach. It's not, it's not, it's like peach with cream. It's what like color is it? Pink. Pink? Yeah. Pink? Pretty. I, I think like it's it. like a, yeah. yeah, masculine pink. Yeah, and a very dark, like, sauce-covered vodka thing on, on the front. Like a real... Like like a good good bake in the in the way that the Europeans would say like you know cooked like cooked cooked dark right yeah. so it's like a nice like rich yeah bien uh, yeah, yeah yeah there you go there you go bien yeah uh, uh, John you can say it for me because I can't uh, I'm not gonna do the pronunciation bien <laughs> um yeah nice uh, well anyway thanks for coming on I uh, enjoyed having you pick up uh, a good bake um, thank and you then, so much you know maybe. Maybe someday, you know, when this is all over, we can, you know, go uh, have uh, bagels or maybe even maybe a Concord grape pie. Yeah, that, that nice? that's, yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks. Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.